Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. I would like to say congratulations to the leadership and the global family of Columbia International University on celebrating God's faithfulness over the last 100 years. And to see, I heard this morning, over 24,000 alumni in over 160 countries of the world. That is great achievement. And I praise God for his faithfulness. And I also want to say thank you to the leaders, uh, various presidents who led uh, this movement. You know, it takes leadership to maintain the original vision that the founders gave their life for. So thank you for faithfully serving this institution and for impacting so many lives around the world. So today, I'm asked to speak on the future of global mission. By the way, I want to tell you that uh, uh, this is an institution that takes a risk because this is my first time to be here. I'm not alumni. I didn't study here, and many people didn't know me, and they invited me to speak in the institution's 100th anniversary. It's a very, very key event. So without knowing me re really to invite me shows that the school takes risks. <laughs> so the future of global mission. Uh, many people have defined the use. They use different ages. So let me use age 35. Those of you who are 35 and under, would you please stand up? Okay, I said, I said, 35 and younger. If you are older than 35 years, please kindly sit down. 35, 35, 35. Okay. So the future, the future of global mission 35, 3, and 5. <laughs> 35. So the future of global mission is you. You are the future of global mission. And before you sit down, I want you to just touch your heart, put your hand on your chest, and say, I am the future of God's global mission. Thank you so much. You can sit down. So, 
So my topic is done. I am done with my topic. One of the Bible verses that have really inspired me comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 2. God spoke through the prophet Isaiah. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And uh, as you know, as uh, theology students, Old Testament prophecies have four different uh, periods of interpretation or understanding. The prophet's own time, the Babylonian captivity, the first coming of Jesus, and the second coming of Jesus. And this uh, prophecy touches all, all those. So when Isaiah was a prophet for God's people, God spoke to, to his people through his prophet that he was going to punish the people because of their disobedience, and he would send them to captivity. But there is hope. That's what Isaiah was saying. There is hope. So this prophecy was fulfilled during Isaiah's time when God was giving hope to his people that you will return to your land. And then the second time it was fulfilled when the people actually returned after 70 years of captivity. And thirdly, when God became incarnate and came and walked among us full of truth and grace, this prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And finally, at the end, when we all arrive to a place that there is no darkness, no death, no sin, no separation from God, this prophecy will be fully fulfilled. But this verse has a deep meaning in my life because before Christ came into our lives, we were like these people, the people walking in darkness, living in the land of deep darkness. And I want to, I want to take you to a village in Ethiopia. I come from Ethiopia, currently live in Orlando, Florida. So let me take you on a journey to my village that I was born. In the southern central Ethiopia, I have missionaries here who can understand what I'm telling you, who have served God in Ethiopia. My village was very, very poor, very poor. We didn't have electricity, we didn't have tap water, we didn't have Christian, we didn't have a church, we didn't have health facility. That was the village that I was born 54 years ago. I'm 54 years old or young person today. When, before I was born, my father served a powerful witch doctor. This morning we, were, we heard about witchcraft. 
And my father served a powerful witch doctor who lived on a mountain top. He had demonic power. He was able to bring rain and stop rain. When he cursed people, people died instantly. When he cursed the harvest of people, harvest dried up. He had power. Because this witch, witch doctor was my uncle, my father served him. When my father served this witch doctor, my father also had demonic power. When my father cursed people, people died. But my father was given so many instructions that he could not keep. For example, my father was required to wake up every morning at five o'clock and drink alcohol nonstop and smoke nonstop. My, fa my, my father had three wives and he would beat up his wives almost daily. And we were not allowed to eat different types of food. When a food was prepared at our home, my father had to take the first portion of the food and put outside our home. There was a big coffee tree dedicated for demonic worship, and my father would put the first portion of the food under that coffee tree, and he would come home and wait for the food to disappear. If the food had disappeared, that means his gods were happy with him and we had permission to eat. By the way, when I was four years old, I was so hungry waiting for that permission and I sneaked out two days, two different days, I sneaked out and ate that food. <laughs> and nothing happened to me. If the food was still there like after about an hour or two. That means my father had to make a sacrifice. So he would kill a chicken or a goat or a lamb to please his gods. Whenever my father missed any of those instructions, tragedy hit our home. That a child with no sickness at all would immediately die. And through that, from my dad's three wives, from each one of them, four children died. So, so from our family, 12 children perished with no sickness. When I was born, my parents did not give me a name. Because in Ethiopia, every name has a meaning. And my parents said, why should we give a name to a child who would die? So I was a nameless until I was four years old. When I reached age four, my parents said, this is unusual, this child is growing up. Let's give him a name. And they named me Bekele. Bekele means Ethiopian language, Amharic word. It means when a seed is, is planted, the seed germinates after a few days. So Bekele means he is germinating. He is sprouting. There is hope and life in this child. That's the meaning of my name. But when I was five years old, the witch doctor called my father and he said, I see that your son is growing. 
I want you to train him so that when he grows up, he will serve me his entire life. And as a sign of that commitment, my father made that commitment, and as a sign of that commitment at age five, I was drinking alcohol and smoking. We were living in that hopeless life, in that deep darkness, with no hope, with no meaning. But one day, the light of the world, the glorious God who created the the heavens and the earth, he sent two angels to come and meet my father. My father was in his bed, and two angels came and sat down in front of him. They started telling him about God, that God is the one who created the heavens and the earth and everything that you see around you. He is the source of life. So the angels taught my father for several hours, and finally they said, we are going, we are taking you with us. We are going to show you what heaven is like and what hell is like. So don't ask me how that happened, but the angels took my father to heaven. And my father walked in the streets of heaven. When he tries to describe what heaven is like, he just, he just cries. He can't describe. He says, it's so beautiful. The streets are so beautiful. And, I, I, and then they took him to the, to the gate of hell. And he saw darkness and people screaming out of darkness saying, please save us. After that visit, one of the angels asked my father, I have shown you two different places. Where do you want to be? And my father says, please, please, I want to be in heaven. Send me to heaven. And the angel stretched his hand, smiled at him, shook his hand, and said, good choice. I will send you two men. They will come and tell you how you can get into heaven. The angels did not tell my father how he could get into heaven. And instead, God said, two men will come and tell you. I didn't understand that until I was old enough. Why those angels did not tell my father how he can get into heaven since he had already visited heaven? The reason is this glorious mission of telling people about the glory, the goodness, the salvation of God is not given to the angels, but to us. To us. Two days later, Friday night, the angels visited my dad Wednesday night. Friday night, two men who had become Christians a week before that day. From another village, God appeared to them and told them, go and see this man called Shanko and tell him that the only way you can get into heaven is if you deny demons and believe in Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God who came to die for your sins. So those two men came. And they said, we have good news to this family. At around 8 p.m., they came to our home, and they stood, and they told my father, my mother, my older sister, and myself, four of us. I remember very vividly, as, as five years old, 
child, I was sitting on the floor. My sister was sitting on the floor. My parents were sitting on the chair. These two men came and they stood in front of us and they were telling us about Jesus. And they said, if you believe in Jesus, you will stop beating your wives. You will stop drinking. You will stop smoking. And you will stop also serving the witch doctor. I remember I stood up from where I was sitting. I walked to these two men and I said, really, if my father accepted Jesus, would he stop beating my mom? They said yes. I didn't know what accepting Jesus meant, but I said if my dad is going to stop beating my mom, I'll accept Jesus. I was the first person in our family to come to Jesus because I wanted peace in our home. That day, my father, my mother, my older sister, and myself, four of us, we accepted Jesus. And he changed our lives. And today, I'm standing before you to tell you that the gospel changes lives. I'm alive today because of the power of the gospel of Jesus. Two days later, another miracle happened in our home. My father had never been to school because we didn't have any school. We raised cows and we had farm. My father went out with the cows and as he was walking with the cows alongside a river, he finds a holy Bible sitting on the ground. And we don't know from where that Bible had come from because we didn't have missionaries there in that area at that time. My father picked up the book and he started opening the, the, through the pages and he didn't know what it was. And all of a sudden he hears a loud voice saying, this is my word. He looked around to see who was speaking to him. There was no one. And as he started wondering whose voice was that, what book is this? Something in his heart said, go and sit down under the shade of a tree. He went and he sat down under the shade of a tree. He opened the book and he says, God, was that your voice? Is this your book? I cannot read it. Can you help me to read it? If you help me to read this book, I promise to teach this book my whole life. Right there, my dad is starting, started reading the Bible. He came home. And he said, I want the whole village to come to my place. I have something to tell them. Because he had demonic power, everything he said, people did with fear. The whole village of about 400 men and women came. My father stood up, he opened the book, he read the Bible, and he asked people to deny spirits and to believe in Jesus. And that night, the whole village came to Jesus. For the next 37 years, my dad passed away 11 years ago. For the next 37 years, the only book my dad could read was the Bible. I gave my father the Bible in Amharic language and another book in the same language, the same scripts, and I asked him to read both. My father could fluently read the Bible, and he could not show me a single letter in any other book. 
And I said, Dad, what's wrong with you? Because the letters are the same. He says, whenever I open the holy book, bright light shines over my head. It's like somebody is carrying a very bright torch, and I could see everything. But any other book is darkness. So God used my father in amazing ways. And today, my tribe, uh, that's uh, my father reading uh, the Bible. My tribe, called the Kambata tribe in central southern Ethiopia, we are about 1.6 million people. And my friend, uh, Dr. Desta Langana did a research to find out how many people had come to Jesus since the gospel came to our tribe. And according to his research, 97% of the entire tribe is born again. Yeah, the next slide shows you how the elders in Ethiopia read the Bible. They devour the Bible. The next slide shows you the mountain that the witch doctor used to live. It's now prayer mountain. And four years ago, for the first time in my life, I was invited to go and speak to my own people. I left the area when I was still young. Um, I was invited four years ago about maybe 150,000 people, they climb up to the mountain and they pray the whole day for the whole world. They pray for you also. They pray for the same gospel that transformed our community will also transform every community around the world. And this prayer is held every uh, January, January 19th, January 19th, every year for the last 25 years. And the second slide shows you, and now on top of that mountain, my friend, whose name I just mentioned, he is the one who started this prayer movement, and they are now building this huge cross on the top of the mountain, 230 feet long cross. That is the complete transformation that the gospel has done in that community on that mountain and complete freedom from the powers of darkness. That is what, when God said people who were walking in deep darkness have seen great light. We have seen great light. So I was changed, and at age 12, I was preaching in the church. And I finished a high school when I was 15, 16. That's my high school graduation. You can see my hair. <laughs> uh, I got that picture from my, uh, my high school graduation certificate. We didn't have so many pictures, sorry, uh, during that time. But I got that picture. Uh, at, I finished high school when I was 15 and graduated from college when I was 19. Uh, the next picture shows you my village. That's my village. These are my nieces and nephews and cousins. Uh, that's, that's the village. 
I got a pair of shoes for myself for the first time when I was in ninth grade. That's how poor we were. Even that pair of shoes, my parents didn't buy for me. This is what I did. When I was in ninth grade, I was 13 years old, 12, 13, and there was no school in our community. One of my gifts is to, whenever I see a problem, I solve that problem. I take initiative to solve that problem, to do everything I can. We didn't have a school in our village, and I gathered all the kids who were unable to go to school, and I started teaching them when I was in ninth grade. So I started a school, and I taught them how to read and write and how to do maths. Um, and then I promoted them to first grade. Then I called a meeting for all their parents. I said, you see, I'm teaching all your children. You have to pay me salary. <laughs> so I charged them. I charged them salary. And with my first salary, I bought my first pair of shoes when I was 13 years old. That's my village. Then I graduated. I went to work with the government in Ethiopia. I worked for about five years. And then I came to Emory University. Uh, I was working with American scientists. God has given me brilliant mind. I was a very smart student in high school, in college. And I was working with uh, uh, World Health Organization, Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta at age 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. And then when I was in Atlanta at Emory University, God comes to me and he says, I have a different plan for your life, my child. I want you to serve my, uh, my purpose in your life. So I received God's calling when I was four, uh, 24 and went back to Ethiopia and joined the Campus Crusade for Christ with my wife. So for the last 28, 29 years, we have been serving God uh, through Campus Crusade for Christ crew. I led the national ministry in Ethiopia for five years. Um, I became a national director at age 25. And then I led the Southern and Eastern Africa region, 23 countries for 10 years. And for the last uh, 11 years, I've been serving as a global vice president. So that's my, my journey. But let me share with you some highlights of that journey. When I was in Ethiopia, one of the things that God has given me is to believe God for the impossible. Because we serve the God of the impossible. Uh, this is my conviction. In your life, if you ask something that you can do, with your own ability and resources and plans. You will do it. You will not experience God. But if you want to experience God in your life, ask God for something big, something that you cannot do. Because God's nature, God wants glory for himself. He doesn't, he doesn't want to share his glory with anyone. So I encourage you and challenge you not to ask God for small things. You will not experience who God is. So I always ask God to do big things. When I was leading the national ministry in Ethiopia, God put in my heart a vision to reach our capital city, the city of Addis Ababa, in 52 days with the gospel to reach 
3 million people in 52 days. You, you know 52, 52 days in the Bible? In the book of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah completed the rebuilding of the walls in 52 days. And I was sharing the vision to our board for the first time. I told them in the next 52 days, from this day to this date, we are going to tell everyone in our city about the love of God. And the board chairman challenged me. He said, you don't know what you are talking about. You are a young, young man. You don't know the reality. You cannot reach the capital city in 52 days. Please slow down. I said, no. I started preaching. I said, do you know that God parted the Red Sea for the Israelites to cross? Do you know that uh, God dried up Jericho for the Israelites to cross? Do you know that during Joshua, God made the sun to stand still? Do you know that during Nehemiah, God used them to re rebuild the walls in 52 days? Are we serving the same God or different God? He said, he said, we are serving the same God, but I don't believe in your vision. He said, unless you change this, I'm resigning. He ended up resigning. <laughs> when he resigned, the day he resigned, he told me that he was resigning because I'm, I'm not flexible to change my plan, that I'm trying to reach the whole city in 52 days. When he informed me about his decision, this is what the Holy Spirit said. Going to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. And behold, the board chairman will be with you always. <laughs> the Holy Spirit said, did I ever tell you that the board chairman will be with you always? No, I will be with you always. So the board chairman resigned, but the Holy Spirit did not. And we, we led the vision. It was amazing experience of mobilizing the entire body of Christ in the city. And in 52 days, the Holy Spirit shook the city. And we recorded 49,000 people coming to Jesus in 52 days. The next highlight was when I was leading the Southern and Eastern Africa region, 23 countries with a combined population of 350 million, the same size as United States of America. And God put this vision in my heart to reach 50 million people in 50 major cities in 50 days in 23 countries from Cape Town, South Africa, to Ethiopia, Eritrea, including Indian Ocean Islands, to mobilize the whole body of Christ to reach 50 million people. It was one of uh, amazing, complex projects that I had led. We trained half a million Christians. We set up 2,000 task forces. 10,000 leaders were involved in leading different aspects of the campaign. We developed 103 different strategies. We mobilized 21,000 church congregations 
in 50 days. At the end, when we gathered all the reports from all the task forces, all the cities, we did not only reach 50 million people, but we reached 64.5 million people with the gospel, with 1.72 million people praying to receive Christ. Amen. Then in 2010, I received a phone call from Cruz, former president, who passed away last Saturday. We are still mourning his passing, Steve Douglas. Godly man, humble leader. He called me when I was in South Africa with my family. He said God is leading a crew to start church planting. You know, we never had church planting. But I was doing that in Africa with all our staff. Wherever we were showing the Jesus film, I told our staff, you can't show the Jesus film unless you are strategically planting a church by using the Jesus film. Because many people are coming to Christ. So in 2010, I received a phone call saying, God is leading us to start uh, church planting, and we would like you to move to the U.S. and help start church planting division for crew. So my wife and I prayed, and we sensed God was leading us, and we ended up moving to Orlando in 2011. So my wife and I were the first official, two official staff in Campus Crusade uh, tasked to do church planting officially. There were so many people unofficially doing church planting. So I accepted the role, and God showed me, see the whole world. See the whole world. So I want you to see the whole world tonight. We just reached 8 billion people this month. 8 billion people in the world. 8 billion is not number. Every person uniquely created by God, passionately pursued by the love of God, Jesus came to die for every person. 8 billion. These 8 billion are divided into two categories. 2.5 billion and 5.5 billion. Okay, I'm a mathematician, so I like numbers. 2.5 plus 5.5. 2.5 are people who self-identify as Christians. And 5.5 billion do not. 5.5 billion do not. And that is the vision God showed me back in 2010. At that time, it was 2 and, seven, two and 5, 7 billion. We added 1 billion in 12 years. So we have two primary responsibilities as we think about the future of global mission. One, the 2.5 billion people who self-identify themselves, they need to know who they believe, who they follow. They need to be discipled. They need to know who Jesus is. It's not only confessing that I'm a Christian. They need, including me, we need to be Christians. That is the mission, the future mission of global mission. So you have 2.5 billion people who call themselves Christians, and some may never go to church. Some may not understand what the Bible teaches. 
We start there. The second mission is the 5.5 billion people who are still waiting to hear and understand what the good news of our Lord Jesus is. So when I was uh, facilitating a planning meeting with my new team back in 2010, we talked about these two primary responsibilities and how can we reach the 5.5 billion people with the gospel. And that's when God put uh, in my heart this number, one for every 1,000. One healthy church for every 1,000 people. If we had one healthy church, a church that is missional, a church that is multiplying, a church that is sustainable, a church that is making kingdom impact, like churches we read in the book of Acts, if we had planted those churches for every 1,000 people in every village, in every neighborhood, in every high-rise apartment, in every digital space, in every relational network, in a walking distance, in college, in high school, in business, wherever people are, one healthy church for every 1,000 people, fairly distributed all over the world, that is when we can say we have effectively engaged the 5.5 billion people with the gospel. So with that vision, my, my family and I moved to the U.S. And we launched the church planting movement for crew. Today, just within crew, I have under my leadership about 26, over 2,600 crew staff leading church planting movements in 152 countries. And just since we started, we have seen over 220,000 churches planted. Then in 2011, the Lord led me to start what we call Global Alliance for Church Multiplication, GACX. GACX is in response to Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 where Jesus prayed for us as he and his father are one, that we may be one. So I invited few leaders of different organizations to pray together, to plan together, and to agree that we can learn from each other. We can inspire, we can challenge, we can support one another, we can become a learning community. So, Leaders of five organizations agreed, uh, those organizations that you see on, on the screen, they agreed to become a learning community of church planting movements. And I said, we all have relationships. We know other leaders. Let's invite them and, and join hands together to engage the 5.5 billion people with the gospel and with church planting. So today, uh, next slide shows you the Global Alliance for Church Multiplication. We have 112 global ministries uh, working together, sharing resources, sharing our leadership with humility and generosity. We're believing that God's kingdom is bigger than our individual organizations or churches and humbling ourselves. And since we started uh, working together, we have seen, the next slide, we have seen about 2.4 million churches and faith communities planted through this alliance in the last 11 years. We focus on multiplication, multiplication of disciples, 
when you are discipling somebody, make sure that that person is discipling another person, that person is discipling another person. Multiplication should take place immediately and simultaneously. Multiplication of disciples. And the church must also plant a new church, not only just one. Multiplication must take place. A church must plant at least two churches. Those at least two churches, they need to raise up new leaders from the harvest field, and they need to plant new churches. So multiplication of leaders, disciples, and churches, that's what we practice, and collaboration. We have seen, just in Campus Crusade crew, we have seen 28 generations of church multiplication in Tanzania in the last five years. 28 generations, that means a church that is planted, raising up new leaders, planting, raising up new leaders. In Indonesia, 21 generations. Uh, in, in Ethiopia, 21 generations. In Indonesia, 18 generations. And we take people from one country to another so that they could go and understand what multiplication is and how it happens. So finally, as I conclude my message tonight, the future of global mission is transformation. Lives that are touched by the gospel, lives that are transformed. Learn from me. From a broken background, from completely hopeless situation, God redeeming me and raising me up and making me a global leader. Whenever you see someone who doesn't know Jesus, see the potential in that person. See what can happen if that person is touched by the power of the gospel and experience transformation. The future of global mission is transformation. A transformed person is a powerful testimony. A transformed person has powerful testimonies. A transformed person is visible. You cannot hide that person. It's a light. Transformed person is a disciple of Jesus. You know, Jesus gave us the future of the mission. The future of the mission is discipleship. Is discipleship. The world is becoming very quickly secularized. Who can stand? Those who are discipled. So let's disciple people. Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations. And five, quickly five things, as we look into the future, you are the future leaders and the current leaders. The future of global mission belongs to you. These are five things I want you to think about when you think about the future of global mission. One, the global mission in the future is all about collaboration. No one, no one organization, no one denomination, no one school can fulfill God's mission. It will take all of us. All of us. So lift up your eyes and, op and see the kingdom. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is bigger and better than any one organization. So the future is collaboration. As a leader, you need to collaborate. To collaborate means you need to humble yourself to learn from others. Generously share the resources that God has entrusted to you. 
Don't say that mine is better. Don't say that we have figured it out. Don't say that I am better so I can help you. But always say, let us. Let us. Even when God created us in his own image, he said, let us create man in our own image. When God confused the language in Genesis 11, he said, let us go down and confuse their language so that they don't communicate to each other, rebelling against us. When Nehemiah called the people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he said, let us rebuild. Let us is the language of heaven. So if you want to succeed in the future mission, you must be a collaborative leader. That's one. Number two, the future is going to be digital. It's digital. Start learning today if you haven't started yet. How you can be effective in a digital mission, digital church. We have learning communities to know how can we administer Holy Communion digitally. How can we baptize people digitally in church planting movements? And as young leaders, you need to start learning so that you can teach the church on how to be effective in fulfilling God's mission in the digital world. What does it mean to plant and multiply churches digitally? You are the young leaders who can help the church to be effective and relevant in a changing world. Thirdly, the future of mission is integrating the spiritual and the physical. You know, the church has dichotomized, this is a spiritual, this is physical. Even in my own denomination in Ethiopia, I come from the largest church, the largest denomination, Kalehiwat. We have two departments, the spiritual department and the development department. We have two different departments and they don't always work together. They don't even collaborate. But the future of mission is one body. This body, Bekele, has the spiritual needs, physical needs, material needs, emotional needs, financial needs, psychological needs, it's one person. So that integrated approach to mission. We don't say, I'm doing physical, uh, I'm doing spiritual. We do together. It's integrated mission. And fourthly, fourthly, the future of mission is effective partnership of the global north and the global south. And as you may know today, the center of Christianity has shifted to the global south. Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Today, it's not global north saying, let's send missionaries to these dark places. It's still valid, but at the same time, those who speak their own language are better positioned to engage their people with the gospel. So we need to define what kind of partnership works today, the global south and the global north. If you ask me, what are some expertise that global north and global south has? Global north, which is North America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, the Formerly sending nations, you have leadership, you have experience, you have strategies. And the global south 
has vital Christianity, manpower, workers. We need to bring those two together and say, how can we fulfill the global mission today effectively? How can the global north and the global south effectively partner today? We need to develop partnership models to, that brings both sides of the world. And in America today, the whole world is here. If you know it or not, the whole world is in America. In the past, many American missionaries went. I praise God for the missionaries who came from America to show us the light of the gospel. But today, you may not need to go to far places. You may need to see your own city. There are so many people who speak different languages who have come to our neighborhoods. And the church in America must find the best ways to engage those people with the gospel. You know, the best way to engage those people is not you. It's you partner with local pastors who speak their own language and ask them, what do you need? How can I serve you? There are one million Ethiopians in America today. One million. Only 20,000 evangelical believers. 980,000 people, just one country. Just one country. So we need to partner with Ethiopian pastors, Korean pastors, Indian pastors, um, Arab pastors here in the US and come alongside them and train them, resource them, so that they can engage the 70 million people who live in America whose mother tongue is different from English. 70 million people in America speak a different language at home. That's a mission field. That's the mission field. And finally, the immigrant church. I've already mentioned that. The immigrant church. We need to equip them. They still have vitality. We need to equip them. So that's the future of global mission, collaboration, digital, integrated or holistic ministries, the North-South partnership in the immigrant church. The immigrant church. And I praise God for this great institution. And my prayer is that as you celebrate these 100 years, that our children and grandchildren will also celebrate 100 years after today with the same spirit and the same commitment and the same vision. That's my prayer. And it will take the young people to do that. So tonight, young people, you are taking that, that mantle to say that I am the future of God's mission. I will do whatever it takes by the grace of God to maintain the vision that Jesus came to die for and to, that he gave us for his glory and for the fulfillment of his mission. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I give you glory and praise and honor for what you have done through this great institution that you have planted about 100 years ago. We thank you for the founders. We thank you for those who have led in their respective uh, 
periods that you have called them to lead this vision. I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you for the global impact that this institution has had so far. For so many people who have come here, who have been impacted by the program through this place, I pray, Lord, that you will continue to anoint them and multiply their impact around the world. I pray for your grace, for your anointing to continue through this place and through the leaders that you have appointed to accelerate the fulfillment of God's mission. You have given us the final picture that people who have, whose sins have been forgiven, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will gather around the throne of God and wor will worship forever. And you have called us to make that happen. What a great privilege, what a great honor, Lord, that you have given us. And I thank you for, for this special event I pray, Lord, that you will light the fire in every heart. And I pray, Lord, that when your voice comes from heaven, who, whom shall I send who will go for us? That each one of us will be able to say, God, please send me. I will go for you. And I pray that your spirit will move in powerful ways, even tonight here, that you will touch someone's heart and will say, my whole life, I will go for Jesus. We thank you for your amazing love, for the power of transformation that we have experienced in our lives. We give you glory and praise. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.